This is Guns and Butter. I attended a couple of those hearings and I found them pathetic. And uh, eventually found myself yelling stuff at Richard Benveniste, the Clinton White House attorney, in the West Village at the end of uh, a day of hearings, confronting him about why he was no longer returning my phone calls. And he called me a whack job. I didn't yell at him first. He called me a whack job in conversation and then walked away and was surrounded by uh, handlers. And I said, this is a parade. This is a charade. And the death of almost 3,000 people is on your hands. And then the NYPD came in, the New York Police Department. They put a nice, big, fat paw on my shoulder, and they said it was time to go. (laughs) That's it. We've heard enough. (laughs) Enough free speech out of you. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Sander Hicks. Sander Hicks is an investigative journalist, author, and independent publisher. He has done innovative reporting on 9-11 for the Long Island Press, INN World Report Television, and Guerrilla News Network. Sander Hicks was the first in the New York Press to critique the 9-11 Commission report for its litany of omissions. His new book, The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up is replete with first-hand investigative reporting of undercover agents, whistleblowers, and the 9-11 commissioners. He is founder of Saw Skull Press and took a leave of absence from publishing on September 10, 2001, the night before the attacks of September 11th which ushered in an era of permanent war, rule by fear, illegal torture, and indefinite detentions, all justified by an attack that the Bush administration claimed was a complete surprise. Today's show is part two. What was BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce? Was it more than a bank? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, in fact, everybody that investigated BCCI, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, said that to really understand it, you've got to stop thinking about it as a bank. It's not a bank. It's more like a, I would like to say that it's the CIA plus capital, plus international capital flows, and sort of like the CIA kind of creating a doppelganger of itself. And it was extremely powerful. It had a militant kind of a militia-like branch. It had like an intelligence branch called the Black Network. The DA here in New York County, the DA for Manhattan, uh, Robert Morgenthau, said that if you count it up, there's probably about 16 mysterious deaths or mysterious suicides that were not suicides when it comes to BCCI on the part of investigators. So when BCCI started to fall apart, there was a cover-up, and uh, not just Danny Casolaro, but... um, there's a reporter for the Financial Times by the name of Ng. His last name was Ng. He was one of the first mysterious deaths around BCCI. And uh, the 16 others. And that's the first fact that I hit in Chapter 2 there about uh, BCCI in my book, The Big Wedding. Where was BCCI headquartered? Well, originally in Pakistan. So that, again, goes back to talking about the client relationship between CIA and ISI. But it was really started by a Pakistani, but it was headquartered in the Cayman Islands. And that's consistent with a lot of other information I've come across. Uh, Cayman Islands is like the home of deregulated capital. It's almost like a pirate enclave in which nobody really asks questions about 
unregistered bank accounts and capital flows. So it was uh, headquartered in the Cayman Islands. It had branches everywhere. They eventually took over American domestic banks, which is illegal in this country. That's supposed to be regulated. They got around regulations. And I think it's a huge indictment, too, of the Democratic Party. You know, if anybody on the left is uh, having qualms about, you know, should we support the Democrats in 2008, go read about BCCI. The Democrats have sold their soul to a corrupt international form of capitalism that is not the good kind of capitalism, small business capitalism. This stuff is extremely corrupt and corrupting. And anybody who's come into contact with it, including Bill Clinton, Hillary Clinton, does not come away unscathed. They come away blackened. In the same way that uh, George W. Bush was connected to BCCI through Salim bin Laden and uh, James Bath and Sheikh Khalid bin Mahfouz, Bill Clinton was connected to BCCI through his friend Jackson Stevens. What's really funny, you know, Bonnie, when I visited Dan Hopsicker down in Venice, Florida, and he gave us the whole tour of what he calls Terrorist Times Square, and and then took us by the Venice Flight School, which uh, I talk about in The Big Wedding. I also contributed some information. I interviewed my friend who's a CIA veteran. He was a former asset of CIA. This guy's like 69 years old. His name is Captain Brad Ayers. Captain Brad Ayers also confirmed that the Venice Municipal Airport has been used by FBI and CIA and uh, international narcotics smugglers for many, many a decade. It's, it's almost like a little Cayman Islands on the Gulf Coast there of Florida. Anyway, Hopsicker was driving us around, and he said, hey, look at this. This piece of land used to be owned by the, the 59th Airborne Division the piece of military land that then became the Venice Municipal Airport. Um, and he said, on this piece of land, this is where Jackson Stevens, a BCCI, used to have his law offices. He used to own this building, and it was a, a palatial kind of southern plantation-looking like office building. And I was like, wow, that's really creepy, because especially when you start thinking about international power and 9-11, and uh, why, if you have 300 flight schools in Florida, why would you go to this one? What role did the uh, Bank of Credit and Commerce play in the Soviet Mujahideen-Afghanistan civil war? That's a great question. And um, BCCI was a major funding vehicle for Saudi money to go into BCCI and come out in Afghanistan and Pakistan to help fund the Mujahideen-Soviet civil war. As you know, we had people like the right-wing congressman, uh, Charlie Wilson, saying stuff like, well, we had our Vietnam, it's time to give the Soviet Union a black eye and a half and uh, really make them suffer the way we suffered in Vietnam. But anyway, uh, BCCI was a major funding vehicle, and they also, through the black network, were also very much home to narcotics uh, smuggling, too, and, and helped develop networks of heroin exporting. So it wasn't just cash in, but it was also... Um, product out to help fund the, the Mujahideen Soviet war. And in fact, when the New York Times printed some stuff about the Mujahideen, they might be connected to heroin smuggling in the 80s, the Mujahideen sent their spokesman to Washington, and they denounced the New York Times at a press conference, and then they had a nice meeting with Vice President Bush. The Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI, as well as the U.S. intelligence service, the CIA, they were both heavily involved with BCCI, weren't they? Yeah. According to Outlaw Bank, which is, I think, uh, one of the best books about BCCI, and it's written by award-winning reporters originally for Time magazine, 
is where some of this stuff originally appeared. There was a very fine line between the ISI and BCCI. I engage in acronyms a lot, so I'm just going to stop for a second and break it out. Uh, ISI, again, is Pakistani CIA, basically, the CIA of Pakistan. It stands for Inter-Services Intelligence. And BCCI, as we already said, is the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, which uh, the Kerry investigation liked to call the Bank of Crooks and Criminals, because this was an extremely corrupt and extremely powerful organization that got broken apart in 91. And uh, not by U.S. investigators. It was really first stopped by the Bank of London investigators. There are sources inside the Outlaw Bank by S.E. Gwynn and John Beatty who say that there really is no division between ISI and BCCI. In fact, it's BCCI and all of the CIA, military, defense, technology industries in the U.S. that were so tied into BCCI and Pakistan, that if you really want to understand where AQ Khan got nuclear technology originally, it was through BCCI. In fact, BCCI and CIA were so intertwined that BCCI enabled Pakistan to hack into uh, high-end space technology. Because my point here is that through BCCI, Pakistan gained access to our high-end spy software, and they could download the same kind of surveillance images that were developed by the $400 billion a year U.S. defense industry. So it's like, it's one thing to have a military-industrial complex completely out of control in this country, and that's, that's bad. $400 billion a year dedicated to death, the United States working class's tax money. You mentioned that in your book, that this satellite, this secure satellite information was given to Pakistan. Yeah. Do you know who or what it was that gave it to them? You mentioned BCCI. Well, yeah. This is a quotation from Outlaw Bank. This is the award-winning reporters, uh, two award-winning reporters from Time Magazine wrote this great book called The Outlaw Bank. And uh, one of their sources who was not willing to have his real name appear in print said this, you're on to something and you're correct about there being no separation between Abidi, i.e. the founder of BCCI, and Pakistan's intelligence agency, the ISI. A number of Pakistan's generals have been on Abidi's private payroll for years. You might not be aware of it, but several people in the State Department have resigned over the years in protest to the extent of our tilt to Pakistan. We gave them unauthorized satellite and communications technology, as well as authorized sophisticated technology like the F-16 fighter plane sale. We ignored the drug trading and their nuclear bomb program, and your friend Abidi and BCCI were in the middle of all of it. So at one point uh, over the course of this book, seeing here, I'm reminded that there was an incredible breakthrough about Navstar documents. And uh, Navstar is that uh, satellite surveillance technology that I made reference to. When was BCCI shut down? Well, let's see. I think it was actually shut down in like 1990, 91, right around there. It's kind of at the tail end of the Iran-Contra hearings, and that's when there started to be hearings about BCCI. But those hearings didn't really go anywhere. And in fact, the same week that Senator Kerry fired his top investigator, Jack Bloom, that same week he took some money from Robert Altman and Clark Clifford, uh, the BCCI's U.S. representatives. Sandra, you actually visited FBI informant Randy Glass in Florida recently, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, let's see. I think it was back in March 18th, 2005, just last March. And he had already done his jail time. That's right. That's right. He was moving out of his house. 
was actually a lot of fun to hang out with him. Yeah, let me tell you a, a crucial story about how important Glass was. Glass has friends at the Palm Beach Post, a reporter named John Pacente. And at one point, Pacente and I were trading notes about Glass, and Pacente had also done some uh, breakthrough reporting on Randy Glass for the Palm Beach Post, which is then referenced by Paul Thompson in Terror Timeline, which is a, a book I highly recommend. It's encyclopedic. It's an essential reference book for anybody curious about what happened really at 9-11. John Pacente, at one point, we were talking about some of the international arms dealers that Randy Glass worked with, people like Mohammed Alamir and Magdi Alamir, two brothers from Egypt. Now, Mohammed Alamir was an arms dealer that uh, had the ability to disguise shiploads of arms, and he had the ability and the connections to be able to make it all look like a, a shipload of vegetables. That sounds pretty well-connected to me. And Magdi Alamir is actually living in New Jersey, USA, and working as a pretty successful doctor successful to uh, and well-connected. However, the state of New Jersey raided his HMO recently and found $5.6 million missing. And uh, there's been lots of rumors that Dr. Magdi Alamir was a financier of Osama bin Laden. He's got connections to the mosque in Jersey City uh, where the blind sheik, who was involved in the 93 World Trade Center bombing, also preached. So there's a lot of questions about Magdi Alamir. And at one point, I was talking to John Pacente at Palm Beach Post, and he was like, hey, do you know who Magdi Alamir's lawyer uh, was at one point? And I said, no, who? And he said, well, it's really weird, but there is a U.S. attorney named Michael Shertoff who had a very brief period as a, a private attorney you know, in between gigs uh, working for the government, and uh, for some reason decided to step in and defend this alleged uh, financier of Osama bin Laden. And I was like, no way, that sounds like a story. And so I started looking into that, and sure enough, you can find it uh, in legitimate news sources like you know, Bergen County Record, that Magdalamir's HMO was raided. It was a $15 million HMO, but $5 million of the $5 million was unaccounted for, and there's all these connections to international terror, and that his attorney was Michael Shertoff. And so when Shertoff turns around and gets um, nominated to be director of, quote-unquote, Homeland Security, I was like, I cannot believe this is happening. This guy who goes out of his way to successfully defend a terrorist financier is now going to become our director of Homeland Security. And I dug a little bit deeper into the story and stuff. And I'm not saying that a lawyer is necessarily affiliated with the politics of a client. Everyone knows that, that that's not the way it works in this country. But the efficacy and the swiftness of the defense and the lack of curiosity on the media's part is extremely disheartening. And there is a factual anomaly that, that deserves to be reported that was never reported in, in the mainstream media. And, and that is that Michael Shertoff was, uh, before he became director of Homeland Security, uh, he was the director of, of Operation Green Quest, the name of the, the federal government's attempt to track terrorist financing. And he accepted this position as the director of Operation Green Quest, just as his defense of Dr. Magdi Alamir was ending. In fact, my researcher, Alan Duncan, out in Pennsylvania, pointed out to me that there's a month overlap by which Shertoff was nominally the head of Green Quest, while he was also the attorney 
for Dr. Magdi Alamir's case, which was wrapping up. That is an incredible fact that is just too dangerous for the media or government to face up to. But you have the current director of Homeland Security was appointed to track terrorist financing for one month that he was defending a terrorist financier. But I could not get this out there. There was a media blackout about the topic. You know, I'm a freelance journalist, or I was a freelance journalist before starting Vox Pop. You know, I had reported for New York Press, for Long Island Press, but I was not able to get this into even an alt-weekly paper. I called John Pacente up at uh, Palm Beach Post down in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, the guy who tipped me off to the Shirtoff Elamir connection. I was like, have you gotten this in your paper? And he said, oh, I can't get it in the paper. I don't know what's going on. It's a, it's a story, and uh, my editors won't let me do it. And then I talked to Randy Glass, and Randy Glass was like, you know, I just talked to this guy, John Mintz, at Washington Post. You know, because Randy Glass is like, he does good outreach and does good media relations. And he, he even talked to Mike Wallace's people at 60 Minutes at one point. But, but he was like, yeah, you know, I talked to this guy, John Mintz, at Washington Post. And Mintz said, Randy, listen, we checked out your story. Uh, we're hot to do it. And then Mintz calls me back and says, uh, listen, we're not going to be able to do the story. Uh, you know, the facts check out, but uh, there's some there's something funny going on. There's sort of a some pressure in town here in Washington to not do the story. I'm speaking with investigative journalist, author, and publisher Sandra Hicks. The Big Wedding, 9/11, the Whistleblowers, and the Cover Up. Today's show is part two. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Was El Amir convicted of anything? Never convicted of anything. Shertoff completely got him off. What is the information that connects El Amir to being a financer of terrorism? That's a good question. Well, first of all, one of my main sources on this was Dateline NBC, actually, a very mainstream television news magazine. And they actually did uh, an ambush interview with Dr. El Amir. And do you remember that Egyptian arms dealer, Bonnie, I just mentioned uh, about an hour ago, uh, Dia Moishin? Yes. Good. Dayline NBC put a camera in Dr. Alamir's face in the parking lot of his office, and they started asking him some questions based on their story on Randy Glass, because you know, this all originated out of Operation Diamondback. And they started saying, like, is it true that you, Dr. Alamir, know Dia Moishin? And Alamir was kind of like, well, I know, I know the name. Uh, and then uh, eventually Alamir admitted that Moishin was a family friend. Okay, so, and that's, I've seen that videotape, I've seen the, the Dateline NBC show, and uh, so that right there is an association that's extremely interesting. The same guy that hooked up Randy Glass with Pakistani ISI officials is a family friend of Dr. Magdi Alamir, this guy who has been accused of being an international terrorist financier from multiple sources. And I'm not alone here. There's people like Rita Katz who also were part of Green Quest, but more of a, as an on-the-ground researcher. She's known in D.C. insider circles. You know, she's a little bit more of a mainstream source. She says that there were um, black-tinted window SUVs that were following the Green Quest investigators around and intimidating them. And she felt like she was under constant surveillance and that she was working with agents that knew how to track surveillance and that she said no. And these agents also said to her, yes, we are under surveillance here. There's obviously uh, people that are are tracking us and intimidating us. And, and she thought it was CIA and people connected to Saudi intelligence. Just to remind everyone what Operation GreenQuest was, it says in your book that Chertoff was picked by the White House to head Operation GreenQuest, the multi-agency initiative to target sources of funding for terrorist organizations. Yeah. 
Now, with regard to El Amir, he was accused of what? Embezzlement? He was accused of using his HMO as a money laundering vehicle for international financial capital flows to terror. And what evidence was brought forth that the money laundered went to so-called terrorists? The state of New Jersey, they were trying to track $16.7 million in losses. And at least $5.7 million was unaccounted for. And the state of New Jersey, uh, I'm going to quote you from their report, they said that it was funneled to, quote, unknown parties by means of wire transfers to bank accounts where the beneficial owner of the account is unknown. So when $5.7 million disappears and it's unaccounted for, that's a, that's a question mark. That's a variable. Okay. Now, Dr. Magdi Alamir also was a financial supporter of the Al-Salam Mosque, where the, the blind sheikh, Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, preached before he was arrested for his role in the 93 World Trade Center bombing. Now, if I could go off on a tangent for a second, that 93 World Trade Center bombing also has a lot of creepy, strange, double-agent, uh, informant interfacing with FBI. And the informant in the 93 World Trade Center bombing, Imad Salem, also said that the FBI knew about the bombing and helped the bombing happen. So, and I talk about that earlier in chapter four of my book and uh, go into that at some length. I've done shows with uh, the Blind Shakes attorney, Lynn Lynn Stewart. Yeah, Yeah, she, uh, she came to Vox Pop here. This is our coffee house, bar, bookstore in Brooklyn, and she spoke here, and I, I have a lot of respect for her. And uh, and again, you can't always associate an attorney with their client. You have to kind of look beyond that. And everyone deserves an attorney. Everyone deserves a fair trial. And I do believe in that. I'm not trying to say Shertoff is one of the neocon hierarchy just because he defended Magdalene Amir. He is part of that hierarchy, but he's part of that hierarchy for a number of different reasons. So El Amir was being accused by the government of laundering money for questionable so-called terrorists, but he was never convicted of this. Was this one of the formal charges against him? Yeah, it was. In fact, you also have to remember that when I introduced this topic, it was also through my source, Randy Glass, who actually has taped phone conversations with Elamir's brother, Mohammed, uh, who is trying to purchase small arms and ammunition and disguise it as a shipload of vegetables. Exactly. You know, um, Michael Chertoff was one of the chief architects of Title III of the USA Patriot Act. Right, and he also advised the CIA about torture and legalities of torture and how to get around stuff. You say in your book that while Chertoff was the head of GreenQuest, he played a central role in formulating U.S. anti-terrorism policy, which included a vast expansion of police powers and the secret detention of hundreds of Middle Easterners in the United States. That's correct. Was this just after 9-11? Yes, it was. And there's other people I, I quote in the in the book that talk about how Shertoff had an, a remarkable rise to power, that usually um, you have to do a lot more before you get appointed to where he got appointed so quickly inside of his, his ascension to power through different judgeships and uh, U.S. attorney appointments. And so he was sort of a favorite son of the neocons. And, you know, when you talk about Shertoff helping helping write the Patriot Act or helping justify legally the permanent detention of hundreds of Middle Easterners or, you know, helping justify Guantanamo or torture, then um, that can be shocking to a lot of people who haven't unplugged the TV in a while. But it's not so shocking if you know the history of, let's say, FEMA 
you know, FEMA actually comes out of some extremely creepy authoritarian policies in which in which you had people like Oliver North even before he was involved in Iran Contra was involved in the continuity of government project. FEMA was at one point contracted to look into how much would it cost to create detention camps. You know, if if it ever got to that point, i.e. a revolutionary situation or an extremely, you know, mass consciousness reached to a, a point where there was a massive national movement against a war for an invasion. Um, they actually say that in the event of massive Descent to uh, a U.S. invasion of another country, we have to have FEMA ready to go to deal with that emergency and uh, be able to put people into prison camps. I know this sounds completely bizarre and extremely strange and, and disturbing, and it is extremely disturbing, and people should have a reaction to this of like, no, it can't be true. I have to go find out for myself, rather than uh, that's probably just not true and not look into it. But if you look at the facts and you, you Google my name and FEMA, you'll see some reporting I did for Guerrilla News Network on the history of FEMA. So Michael Brown's resignation from FEMA in the wake of Katrina is not the worst scandal out there about FEMA. FEMA has been continually chastised for reinventing itself as a law enforcement entity when it's supposed to be a, an emergency management agency. And a lot of people said that the, the way that FEMA treated the victims of Katrina was a lot like a detention camp mentality, that FEMA came in with this authoritarian police state mentality, like, this is it, we're practicing the way we've been trained. And I think it's really creepy. You know, in your chapter on Michael Chertoff, Terror's Defender, you have a subheading on the Vince Foster connection. How does Vince Foster, first of all, who was Vince Foster, and how does this connect in with Michael Chertoff? I'm glad you asked me about that, Bonnie, because it's hard to tackle this topic because it seems like it's only been the domain of Rush Limbaugh and right-wing radio. And But I have mixed feelings about Clinton myself. You know, I don't completely dismiss him as a, a sellout to the ruling class. I, I think that there's some interesting things about Clinton. But he, politically, he obviously did sell out 99% of the time. And it's important to understand his relationship to BCCI. Not many people realize Clinton's relationship to the Iran-Contra scandal. My friend Paul DiRienzo broke that story in 92 with the MENA Arkansas airstrip being used as a, a hub for Iran-Contra cocaine and weapons resupply operations. I think historically in the big picture, in the next 30 to 40 years, the topic of Vince Foster is going to come up more in mainstream history as it becomes less the domain of right-wing radio and more the domain of serious historians that are looking into how is it that this deputy White House counsel uh, happened to show up dead in 92. Before I get into the details of it, I just want to say that I did not go looking for Vince Foster uh, over the past four years of research into 9-11, but the corpse of Vince Foster keeps on floating up in the river of 9-11, Iran-Contra, BCCI research that looks like um, Hillary and Bill either ordered his death or looked the other way around his death and certainly uh, participated in a massive cover-up. Uh, so after four years of research um, and talking to some of the major sources on this story, people that, that were that were there in the park the day that the body was discovered, uh, people like the English journalist Ambrose Evans Pritchard, and, and reading his book about Foster and Clinton, I personally do, really do believe that uh, that Foster was murdered 
by certain factions of the Clinton White House. And I think the facts are on my side, uh, especially the facts like the director of FBI was fired the same day the body was found. And the director of FBI now believes that there was a cover-up and that he was fired for that reason so that the FBI wouldn't claim jurisdiction over the crime scene. Instead, it was uh, the Park Police. And all kinds of anomalies uh, surface up. And uh, without going into that too much, the question was really more about Shertoff and Shertoff's connection to Foster. And I think it's important to look at who colluded in the cover-up, and you can sort of tell what side people are on by the role they play in this. And so, so during the the Vince Foster investigation, there was, you know, we had the Ken Starr investigation going on at the time, and Ken Starr did a kind of a lackadaisical investigation into Foster as part of his Clinton investigation, and I would argue that he did a, a pathetic job of of looking into uh, the Vince Foster death. There are transcripts, of course, of the lawyers cross-examining witnesses during these hearings. And one of those lawyers was, guess who? The Senate counsel was Michael Shertoff. And one of uh, the sources, the guy, Patrick Knowlton, the guy that was there in the park that day that the body was found, he told me that Shertoff knew what we knew. It wasn't that hard to find. Nobody could leave that much information out there unless they knew nobody was going to get to it. And that was Shertoff's job, not to get it. It was obvious Foster's car wasn't in the park. Michael Shertoff never went near that issue. That's what Patrick Knowlton told me. I tracked that guy down and found him. And... Now, you talked to Patrick Knowlton yourself. That's right. Now, That's Patrick right. Knowlton, according to your book, Patrick Knowlton was a Washington, D.C. private investigator who simply happened into Fort Marcy Park in yeah. Arlington, Virginia. He just happened to stop there. Yeah, Knowlton, like me, voted for Clinton in 92, so he wasn't like... Uh, He's kind of like the classic whistleblower who puts the truth above all else and, you know, almost gotten his his life taken away from him for the effort by FBI, actually. They intimidated him numerous times. And uh, So yeah. Patrick Knowlton stumbles into this park, and what right. happens? Well, Patrick Knowlton pulled over to Fort Marcy Park to relieve himself in the woods and was walking through the parking lot and got glared at by uh, some guy who was kind of... Uh, in the parking lot there. And so Knowlton relieves himself in the woods, comes back in the parking lot, and the guy's still there. And uh, Knowlton made a mental note of the scene and later realized that he did not remember seeing Vince Foster's car there. And Knowlton later realized that he had been in the park about an hour or so before the body was found. And so he kind of felt that there was something kind of creepy going on with that, that guy glaring at him, that... Uh, that maybe the guy was protecting a pathway to the body. And uh, what's also crucial is that the the EMT guys that first found Vince Foster's body did not find car keys on the body. And so that's really creepy. And now it looks like Patrick Knowlton didn't remember seeing the car being there. So it looks like that maybe Vince Foster's car was, was driven to the parking lot after the body was placed there. And if you go back, this is not in my book, but if you go back to Ambrose Evans Pritchard's book, there was some forensic evidence that pointed to uh, hairs from the White House carpet or fragments of the White House carpet being in Vince Foster's pants around the time of the the autopsy. So it looks like maybe there was some sort of struggle that happened in the White House. It looks like maybe Vince Foster was uh, was killed there and uh, and then driven to Fort Marcy Park. Another thing that's really crucial is that the the EMT workers and the the ambulance guys who first found the body also did not remember seeing a gun in the guy's hand. And this was supposed to be Vince Foster shooting himself in the head in the park 
and yet there's no gun visible, according to the first eyewitness testimony, who, uh, the people that discovered the body. And that's, that's really weird. So, Was there uh, a gun found at all? There was a gun found later, but uh, there was a lot of controversy about whose gun it was. Was it the family gun? What was the color of the family gun? Et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I don't go into that in my book. I, I think it's really relevant, though, that there certainly should be more of an investigation into this. Uh, there's an independent magazine called Strategic Investor. They hired three top objective forensic experts to uh, analyze the so-called suicide note uh, that Vince Foster left behind. And all three forensic experts found it a forgery. And I think it's really relevant because there, there's a new biography of Hillary Clinton out there. It's kind of a, a critical biography. It's, it's, it, the, the mainstream liberals like Al Franken really, really hate it because it's critical of Hillary Clinton. And I think it's rightly critical of Hillary Clinton. I, I do find that she's a shallow, ambitious U.S. politician that's just more of the same corruption and, and not the revolutionary reform that we need in this country. But What's really funny is that this guy, Ed Klein, in his book on Hillary, won't go near the Vince Foster stuff with a barge pole. It's just too too controversial in this country, too much the domain of right-wing radio. And, uh, and he claims that Vince Foster committed suicide because he was upset about the interior decorating that was going on in the White House. It's like, come on, you know, stop and think about it, brother. I'm speaking with investigative journalist, author, and publisher, Sander Hicks. The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up. Today's show is part two. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What was the Pritchard book that you referred to? Oh, it's called The Secret History of Bill Clinton, and it's in my bibliography. And uh, Pritchard is, was really great because the other time that, that Vince Foster comes up in my research is... On the topic that we haven't even talked about yet, Bonnie, because I know you've probably spent a lot of time on this topic, but the topic of Delmar Vreeland. And I don't really want to spend a lot of time on Vreeland, but it's interesting because Vreeland, one of Vreeland's defenders was this guy, Ambassador Leo Wanta, who worked for the Reagan and Bush White Houses and also the Clinton White House and was in Switzerland in, with Vince Foster in, I believe it was June of 93, right before Foster's body was found. So... And Wanta also was a part of the same operation that Foster was a part of. It seems like there was some international capital flows coming together to try to buy a peace accord in the Middle East. And it seems like the Clintons were interested in skimming off uh, some of that money for their favorite charity, Children's Defense Fund. And Foster was there to administer that skimming off. And Wanta was there to administer uh, the operation with Foster. But something went horribly awry. And a week later, Foster was dead. And a week later, Wanta was uh, incarcerated in Switzerland, and then later extradited back to Wisconsin, given a uh, kangaroo court railroading trial. And uh, to this day, he remains under house arrest in Wisconsin. And again, uh, Ambassador Leo Wanta is one of these people that you're like, you discover this story, and you're like, is this true? This is just crazy. This couldn't be true. And then, you know, there's other sources that say, no, it's true. And, and this guy is who he says he is, and he's got a ton of paperwork to prove it. In fact, he's in the Reagan Presidential Library. Judge Thomas and uh, Fred Fielding corresponded about Ambassador Leo Wanta. And, uh, there's documents in the Reagan Presidential Library that Ambassador Wanta is trying to get right now. But there's enough corruption in this country that the whistleblowers get suppressed and nobody really takes the time to investigate what it is they did or said that got them incarcerated or railroaded to prison. 
I wanted to ask you what Vince Foster was involved in that would make him a target of uh, murder. There's any number of things. Uh, one of the things Patrick Knowlton told me, well, this is the D.C. private investigator who kind of made this his uh, his project. Knowlton said, like, you know, Vince Foster was not some benevolent liberal Democrat who's, you know, interested in making government work for the people. This guy, Knowlton said something very compelling to me. And, uh, and so I can't answer your question with a high degree of specificity because I don't really know. But I like Patrick Knowlton's answer to the question. Knowlton said, Look at who Foster associated with. You know, you got to be careful when you're choosing your friends because you become your friends. And and Foster was not associating with activist, charitable, liberal types. He was interacting with some of the more corrupt factions of what is called the Dixie Mafia, the Little Rock, um, rich and powerful. Uh, people like Jackson Stevens, who was connected to BCCI, people like Dan Lassiter, who was the, the Little Rock, Arkansas bond trader that became you know, a, a big supporter of Bill Clinton because he was their guy. So um, it looks like the Foster-Wanta operation in Europe might have had something to do with uh, Foster's death. Who knows? And I wanted to remind everyone that Patrick Knowlton is, in fact, the Washington, D.C. private investigator that you spoke with who just happened to walk into this park on the day that uh, Vince Foster's body was found. Right, Fort Marcy Park, that's correct. You interviewed uh, Daniel Hopsicker in Florida, didn't you? Yeah, I interviewed him in New York and Florida. I got him on INN World Report Television, and so we, together, we, we did like the... You know the very first ever television broadcast of Hopsicker's breakthrough work, finding Amanda Keller, colorful character. She was like the pink-haired stripper girlfriend of Muhammad Atta, so that was pretty cool. I like Hopsicker a lot. We don't have the same kind of political point of view. He's a little bit more apolitical. He's a little bit more of a, um, a cowboy, but um, I really like him because he's got a lot of courage and, and spine, and he goes where no one else is willing to go. Now, what did you find out about Daniel Hopsicker's investigations in Venice, Florida? Well, it's more like Hopsicker wrote this book, and I helped him with it a little bit in New York. I helped get him on uh, television, on court TV, and, and then interviewed him for my own show on INN World Report television, which is a pretty good alternative TV news source on the Dish Network on Free Speech TV. And uh, I just thought his research was neglected in the mainstream media that, you know, this is a guy that is finding stuff, finding documents and finding sources and finding eyewitnesses. He's finding stuff that completely contradicts the official story of Muhammad Atta. You know, everyone on CNN and Fox is telling us Muhammad Atta was this dedicated Islamic fundamentalist terrorist who was willing to die for a cause. And Hopsicker find stuff that gives us a much more nuanced, complex character. This Muhammad Atta was full of mixed emotions. Muhammad Atta was, obviously had some sort of problem with cocaine and alcohol, would go on three-day party binges with Amanda Keller, his American former stripper girlfriend. Amanda Keller is an interesting story, and it's only Daniel Hopsicker who tracked her down and found her and talked to her about what she knew about Muhammad Atta. And one of the crucial facts, you know, despite all the salacious details, beyond that, what's also really relevant about Amanda Keller is that she says the FBI 
found me before you found me, and they told me to disappear. They told me not to talk to anyone. And that is really creepy. And that's that, to me, is even more newsworthy than some of the more salacious details that uh, made the front cover of the German tabloids. What do you think was significant about his research into the flight schools in Florida and the owners of the flight schools? Well, I think some of the stuff that's most significant is the fact that he was in Florida and he started meeting veterans of law enforcement, like a couple of a sheriff and a deputy in a certain county in Florida who said that, oh yeah, the CIA has used Florida as a launching pad for their special operations for many a decade, and that we think that 9-11 was a CIA operation more than it was an Al-Qaeda operation. And that was news to Hopsicker. You know, he didn't really have that perspective, and that, that got us all a lot closer to the truth. And so that's that that was one of the first things that Hopsicker found, and then he started finding out that Rudy Deckers was an ex con, and that Rudy Deckers was the president of uh, he was the president of Huffman Aviation where Muhammad Atta and Marwan Al Shihi took flight lessons. And the owner was Wally Hilliard, again, who has ties to the Dixie Mafia. This guy was friendly with Truman Arnold, who was one of the Clinton White House's fundraisers. There was a, a small scandal people might remember. Truman Arnold was the guy that sold trips to the Lincoln bedroom for certain fundraisers to the Democratic Party or the Democratic Leadership Council. So Truman Arnold and Wally Hilliard, the owner of the flight school, had connections. And Truman Arnold and Jerry Falwell had connections. Uh, Again, there were financial connections, and Falwell lent Wally Hilliard uh, major amounts of money that uh, Hilliard never paid back. And then um, going back to Rudy Deckers, the guy that was running the flight school, for Hilliard, Deckers was this creepy character. Is not is the last person any sane, legit businessman would hire to run a company. This guy was like sort of a um, he was guilty of sexual harassment against uh, numerous employees. He was a, a an ex-con who was living in the U.S. because he couldn't go back to the Netherlands uh, without getting arrested. So, from what Hopsicker found out about Mohammed Atta, do you think it sounds like there are two Mohammed Attas? No, actually. I think that's exactly what the government wants you to believe. Because when the information came out in the news that Mohammed Atta had trained at Maxwell Air Force Base in the Deep South, that was pretty interesting to a lot of people who were skeptical of the neocon agenda. And But then the mainstream media bought the official story that the government produced that, oh, there are two Mohammed Attas and you just have the wrong one. But only Hopsucker called up Maxwell Air Force Base and said, okay, what's the other Muhammad Atta's birth date? And, you know, if they're, if it's true, it's, it's not the right one, and you have these records, then obviously you will be able to produce a birth date, which will then give me the ability to track this other Muhammad Atta and see if there's, a, you know, some sort of legal paper trail for this person uh, coming in and out of the country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But instead of them promptly producing the other Muhammad Atta's birth date, they intimidated him and they said, you're not going to get that information from us and you better not keep trying. So the idea of there being two Muhammad Atta's, I think, is a red herring. Sander, I wanted to spend a few minutes talking about the 9-11 Commission Report, which you describe in Chapter 6 as a national disgrace and as government propaganda. 
I have done shows before where we have gone over some of the individuals on the 9-11 Independent Commission, like Philip Zellico and Thomas Kane, Lee Hamilton, etc. But you have some information in your book on these people that I hadn't really noticed before. There's a lot to know about all of them. Yeah. Obviously, they're all big insiders. What do you think is some of the most pertinent details about some of these people? Well, in the big picture, the ones that are most connected to CIA and U.S. intelligence factions are the Democrats. It seems like the Republicans are actually a little bit, are a little bit less connected uh, as closely to CIA. Namely, Jamie Gorelick comes to mind. She's actually on the CIA advisory panel. Or, or you could talk about Richard Benveniste. This is a guy I interviewed on INN World Report Television, and he refused to answer three of my questions. And uh, this guy was a lawyer for Barry Seal, the Iran-Contra CIA drug runner who flew into Mena, Arkansas so many times. You also mentioned that uh, Bob Carey from the commission. Mm -hmm. Democrat Bob Carey has worked with right-wing advocacy group Project for a New American Century as a member of the Committee for the Liberation of Iraq. Yeah, which I think shows a pathetic lack of guts on this guy's part. It seems that everything he's involved in politically comes out filtered through this or tainted with this brush of moderation. And, and uh, he seems very easy to convince. Going back to the Franklin savings and loan scandal, Franklin SNL scandal that um, John W. DeCamp has written about, which involved uh, the GOP pedophilia cults. Well, Bob Carey was the governor of Nebraska at that time. So you know, he, even in, in a, a book as arcane as uh, the Franklin cover-up, Bob Carey services as a very weak-willed political mind. And um, Bob Carey is also a Vietnam uh, war criminal, which I touch upon in my book. It, it came up a couple of years ago that he participated in the massacre of about 16 Vietnamese civilians during his time in Vietnam. He claims to not remember some of the uh, details, which might be true, but... But still, he was there, and that, sh that shows um, it shows if you don't stand up to the wrong and the violence of American society, it will. It's not just like you can just take a pass and participate in it in a low-key manner. No, violence and, and wrong really sweep you up and, and make you a part of it if you don't take a stand against it. So, I'm speaking with investigative journalist, author, and publisher Sandra Hicks. The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up. Today's show is part two. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. One thing that I hadn't realized that you mentioned is that Richard Benvenisti actually defended Barry Seal, the Iran-Contra figure who flew cocaine exports from the Contras into Mena, Arkansas. Yeah, and on television, when I asked him about it, he was very reticent to talk about it. And uh, he visibly stiffened, and he said that he did not want this to become an infomercial for his private law practice. I mean, he's very smart. He's very uh, gifted at deflection. And I said, oh, no, this won't become an infomercial for your law practice. And, you know, and I proceeded with my question, and he interrupted me, and he said, please stick to the topic. And I said, absolutely, because the question was really about Dan Hopsicker, who did the book about Barry Seal, and also did the book recently about Muhammad Atta. You know, I asked him about the allegations of wild cocaine parties with uh, Muhammad Atta and Amanda Keller, and uh, Richard Benvenisti had no answer for me. And I, I said, will the commission look into this? And he had no response for me. He just said, that's a heck of a question. What about 9-11 Commissioner John Lehman? What about him? 
Oh, yeah, that is interesting. Uh, Wayne Madsen, one of the top independent researchers, was actually in, in the Navy in Coos Bay, Oregon, when Lehman, I think he was secretary at the Navy at the time, he presided over a, a pretty major cover-up of a pedophilia scandal. And Madsen was like uh, some sort of low-level officer on the base at the time and uh, was able to comment on the, the validity of the scandal and and how it was covered up by Lehman. So it seems like overall that everybody on the commission is a cover-up artist in some way that is either connected to CIA or connected to the Reagan White House or the Bush White House or the Clinton White House. And this flies in the face of what the commission by its own charter was supposed to be. You know, the commission actually says they're not supposed to have conflicts of interest. They can't be associated with any of the economic or political interests being investigated here. And I don't know how they got away with this, but the commission somehow kind of like reversed their mandate. And they decided, I think, on their own volition. Obviously, they were doing a job. I think they know that they were a body that was put together to do a job, and that job was to deflect the guilt. So a lot of people thought that they were there to levy sentence and to find out who was guilty for 9-11. But in their very first pages of the report, they say that somehow they've decided that their job was not to find out who was guilty about 9-11. I think the verbatim quote is, our job was not to assign blame. I think that shocked a lot of people. A lot of people were like, wait a minute, wasn't your job to investigate 9-11 and to uh, find out how and why it happened and who did this, who killed 2,898 people on September 11th, 2001? What about 9-11 Commissioner Lee Hamilton? Yeah, Hamilton is, he comes up in American Dynasty by Kevin Phillips. And Phillips is a former GOP guy who's finally looking into some of this Bush family corruption and talks about October Surprise, which is the occurrence of Bush and and William Casey of CIA putting pressure on the Iranians to hold on to the hostages until Reagan could take the White House. Very interesting topic, and it's taken about 20 years for the mainstream media to actually respect the fact that there's a a paper trail and there's witnesses, and it looks like it it actually did happen. What was Lee Hamilton's involvement in that? Lee Hamilton uh, headed up the congressional investigation that supposedly looked into it because George Herbert Walker Bush was president at the time that the allegations came out, and he uh, reacted with severe opprobrium, and uh, he felt that this was slanderous, and he said, well, get right to the bottom of it, and then he gave it to Lee Hamilton, who's uh, a proven cover-up artist who had just recently done a very good job of cover-up in the Iran-Contra investigation, because Hamilton was also heading up the congressional inquiry into Iran-Contra, in which he refused to call Reagan and Bush as witnesses, because he said he didn't think it would be, quote, good for the country. And uh, you have to wonder what country he's looking out for, the country of the rich or the country of the people. So, And then what about Philip Zelikow? Oh, yeah, Philip Zelikow, executive director of the commission, and Zelikow co-wrote a book with Condoleezza Rice about the glories of, of a unified Germany. And so that's how close he was to the Bush White House. Zelikow also worked for the Bush transition team, so he helped the Bush White House get established. That's pretty creepy. I mean, that's, that's pretty blatant. It's almost as if all of this is an open secret. It's almost as if they, uh, in the same way that Rita Katz, the, ter- uh, the author of Terrorist Hunter, the, the former Green Quest worker who got intimidated by you know this open surveillance of her. It's almost as if the things that are happening in this country are not happening with clandestine 
methods anymore. They're happening with overt methods. You know, the, the, the Rita Katz was, was the surveillance guys didn't try to hide that they, were, that they had her under surveillance because it was a form of intimidation. And in the same way, the 9-11 Commission report isn't trying to hide too much that their membership is made up of D.C. insiders, because it's not that hard to find a set of facts that says, well, these are not the kinds of people that will listen or call any kind of dissenters or any kind of alternative opinions or anybody with an alternative set of data into our hearings. No, they called people like Rudy Giuliani and Tom Ridge to their hearings. I attended a couple of those hearings, and I found them pathetic. And uh, eventually found myself yelling stuff at Richard Benveniste, the Clinton White House attorney, in the West Village at the end of uh, a day of hearings, confronting him about why he was no longer returning my phone calls. And What did he say? He called me a whack job. I didn't yell at him first. He called me a whack job in conversation and then walked away and was surrounded by uh, handlers. And I said, this is a parade. This is a charade. And the death of almost 3,000 people is on your hands. And then the NYPD came in, the New York Police Department, and they put a nice big fat paw on my shoulder, and they said it was time to go. (laughs) That's it. We've heard enough. (laughs) Enough free speech out of you. Sandra, did you want to uh, say something about Team B? First of all, what is Team B? Team B was Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney in the White House in 1976. 75, 76, they were working in the Ford White House. Cheney was chief of staff. Rumsfeld was the secretary of defense. And they didn't like the fact that the CIA was reporting the truth about the Soviet Union. And William Colby, uh, who was the head of the CIA at the time, the CIA was reporting, well, Soviet Union is pretty much in decline. They're not that much of a threat to us anymore. But these GOP hawks that were further to the right of Richard Nixon, didn't like Richard Nixon's detente. Rumsfeld and Cheney were, you know, darlings of the ultra-capitalists, the military industrialists and the oil industries. So, of course, they wanted an intelligence source to say that, no, the Soviet Union is outstripping us in their arms production capacity, and they're creating new weapons that we must uh, employ large amounts of disbursements and money to, to compete since they weren't getting the intelligence they wanted from the CIA, and, and you tell me if any of this sounds familiar to the present day, they weren't getting what they wanted from the CIA, so they fabricated their own intelligence, and they created something that still exists to this day. It's called the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, PIFIAB. It's almost like a White House alternative to the CIA. And Condoleezza Rice in the modern incarnation has been a part of PIFIAB. And the PIFIAB couldn't get authorized to exist by the current CIA head, William Colby. He was removed. A CIA head named George Herbert Walker Bush was installed, and Bush signed off on it. So PIFIAB was created as a rival to the CIA, and PIFIAB created false intelligence, effectively. BBC reports on this, quote, Anne Kahn, who's an arms control expert and PhD, and she says that that PIFIAB issued uh, a couple of controversial reports, the most controversial of which was called the Team B report, the third report, and it talked about all these new weapons the Soviet Union was creating, and there was really very little um, uh, scholastic integrity. You know, there was very little peer review. There was very little um, uh, integrity of sources in these documents. It was really just a question of opinion, and uh, in any kind of academic institution, this kind of research would, of course, not fly, but this was the Ford White House 
And this was a new experiment for the GOP hawks to see if they could engage in uh, fabrication of intelligence that flew in the face of everything that the CIA was saying and everything the other intelligence organizations were saying. And they were successful because the Team B became the A-team in the Reagan White House. So this uh, so-called Team B originated in the in the Ford White House. That's right. And then reemerged in the Reagan White House. That's right. Same cast of characters. And I think the, the idea of the, we, we don't know that what the government says is correct. And in fact, it's probably serving the interests of an elite class of people rather than the interests of average American people. We don't know when they say that this person is the enemy. We don't know why they're saying that. We're handed these figures and we're told to fear them, you know, and we're, we're given these scenarios uh, and we're terrorized with anthrax and we're terrorized by 9-11. And when you really track the footprints back, it comes back to the government itself that has given us these causes of fear. So I think Team B is essential to 9-11. The, you know, the ascendant neocons trying on to see if they could manipulate the media, manipulate reality, really. You know, I'm not a a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party. But they do say one really good thing. They say public opinion is something created. And I think Team B really proves that really well, that public opinion is something created, and that it's not that hard for the right to manipulate public opinion. And we have to be people of truth that expose that and say these people are not acting in the interest of the people. Something happening, yeah. I've been speaking with investigative journalist, author, and publisher Sander Hicks about his new book, The Big Wedding, 9-11, The Whistleblowers, and The Cover-Up. He has appeared on 60 Minutes on HBO Cinemax in the documentary Horns and Halos and has been featured in Punk Planet magazine. Sander Hicks started Soft Skull Press and Vox Pop. He and his wife, Holly Anderson, run the Vox Pop Coffee House, Bookstore, and Media Company in Brooklyn, New York. Sander Hicks can be reached by email at sander at voxpopnet.net or call 718-940-2084. Visit his website at www.voxpopnet.net. That's www.voxpopnet.net. Guns and Butter is edited and produced by Yara Mako and me, Bonnie Faulkner. To leave comments or order copies of our shows, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Take control of your own cycle.
lookout for the spirit sniper, trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release.